This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Gist is sponsored by Friday Night Tykes. Gear up for a new season of the most controversial show on television. For these 10-year-old boys, playing a man's sport comes with a very high price. Friday Night Tykes. New season premieres January 20th at 9 on Esquire Network. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, January 13th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We go now to the Charleston Gazette. At the request of a West Virginia Board of Education member who said he doesn't believe human-influenced climate change is a, quote, foregone conclusion, new state science standards on the topic were altered. The board member, whose name is Wade Linger, added the words and fall to the part of the standards which asked sixth graders to explain the rise of global temperatures over the last century. Get it? The rise and fall of global temperatures. Wade Linger said that asking them to explain the rise, quote, presupposes that global temperatures have risen over the past century. And of course, there's debate about that. Only thing is, there's no debate about that. According to NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, they have a surface temperature analysis. They say 97% of scientists agree with the conclusion that humans have caused rising temperatures over the last century. NASA also has a very useful webpage, climate.nasa.gov. It lays it all out. But Wade Linger does not care. I was compelled by Wade Linger. Could be the name, Wade, to move through something slowly, Linger, to stay in something for a while. So it seems like Wade Linger might be a man who proceeds carefully. But then the New York Times had a story on Wade Linger, and I was looking at his shirt, the shirt in the picture that the Times ran, and it was a polo shirt with a company logo, and it said TM Squared. So I did some Wade Linger research. Wade is the president of TM Squared. He's in tech. Sorry, let me quote from his bio. It's not just in any kind of tech. Wade Linger is a high-tech entrepreneur and a native of Charleston, West Virginia. So what does it say about TMC Technologies? Well, here's his company. TMC Technologies is an information technology, IT, services company with significant contract experience at both federal and state government levels. Our customer base includes the Department of Justice, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, Department of Defense, and NASA. Yes, NASA. A major client of Wade Linger's company is NASA. NASA, a leading voice of climate change sensibility, which is providing a living to a climate change opponent. Oh, well, I say that's fine. It's America. I hope that business doesn't dry up. I actually hope Wade Linger's fortunes rise or fall. No, just rise. On the show today in the spiel, just kind of a rundown of stuff. I couldn't quite believe what was going on in the world. And the internet is not the answer. I've actually found an exception. But first, the Keystone XL pipeline is going to be approved by Congress, but it's still heavily opposed by environmentalists, including environmentalists within the administration. Do they have a good argument? The Senate on Monday voted to take up a bill that would force the Keystone XL pipeline to be approved 
President Obama has indicated that he will be vetoing this bill. It is a Republican versus Democrat issue largely, though a number of Democrats do support the pipeline. And the science behind it raises just so many questions. So joining us now is Michael Levy, Senior Fellow, Studies Energy and the Environment at the Council on Foreign Relations. Hello. Hi. As I look at Keystone, there are so many facts on both sides, and both sides seem to often minimize either the impact or the disruption. Could you put it in context? Let's go through some of these facts. How much energy will it contribute to the United States' energy needs? It's not particularly useful to think about how much a given amount of oil contributes to the United States as opposed to to others. Uh, The global oil market is just that. It's a global market. And so what's important to ask is, how much does this contribute globally? The pipeline will carry about 800,000 barrels of oil a day. That's a little less than 1% of the global oil market. So at first blush, this would be about 1% of the global oil market. When you add everything up, though, you have to include the fact that once you add that Canadian oil, you're going to lose some oil from somewhere else uh, because it's no longer going to be as competitive. So the net impact is somewhere less than uh, 1% of the global oil market. And that's not insignificant. It's often portrayed that that's, oh, almost nothing. But that's something. It's something. It's relatively small. But any problem, any phenomenon, when you divide it into enough pieces, is small. Uh, And so this is one relatively small piece of a much larger global oil market. Uh, Putting to context the environmental impact of the pipeline. I think there are two different pieces of the environmental impact. There's a local environmental impact along the pipeline route in Canada where oil is produced. Uh, But the most uh, most of the debate at this point is focused on climate change. And here again, uh, there is a sort of direct impact and an indirect one. Directly, if uh, you're talking about roughly 1% of the global oil market. You're talking about roughly 1% of the emissions from oil. And since oil is one piece of the global emissions puzzle, in addition to coal and gas and forestry and other pieces, it's some fraction of that in terms of its contribution to global climate change. On top of that, you have the same uh, challenges in pinning this down as you do with the Uh, the oil supply side. If Canadian oil adds to the global market and others that are less competitive at that point pull oil off, uh, it's that net addition to the global oil supply that determines the climate impact. Yeah, environmentalists sometimes portray this uh, method of extracting the tar sands or specifically this pipeline as different and worse than the environmental impact of other means of oil production. Is that true? So the emissions associated with producing this oil, the greenhouse gas emissions, are higher than those associated with a typical barrel of oil. There's also uh, significant, large, local environmental impacts, though there what really matters is where you sit. Uh, The impacts are very large in Alberta, uh, but uh, that doesn't necessarily influence U.S. policymaking. And what about the fact that only 35 permanent jobs will be created, although, you know, most projects, large projects, is not the maintenance of the projects where jobs are created. It's the building of the project. So how do you put the jobs picture in context? Typically, you don't decide on projects uh, on, a, on a jobs basis. You look more broadly at uh, economic costs and at economic benefits. And if the benefits outweigh the costs, uh, you say yes. Uh, and you uh, focus on making sure that a healthy economy translates into more jobs through a host of other policies. So what do you think? Do the benefits outweigh the costs? I think the benefits and the costs are both small, um, 
But given current market conditions, my instinct is that the benefits do outweigh the costs. You know, uh, I was reading something that you wrote not too long ago. It was about the environmental impact statement when they studied this pipeline right. and they said that it wouldn't have that huge an impact. There were a couple of right. caveats. And they talked about, well, what if oil falls between 65 and $75 a barrel? It's much lower than that now, by the way. Right. And it, the, that statement said the extra cost of transporting the oil by rail right. rather than pipeline would change the economics of it. Right. And then you also had a stat in there that at below $65, the pipeline might not, oil sand extraction wouldn't even right. be economic. But we know for a lot of reasons that's not true. Doesn't that highlight the um, problem with talking about projections and if-then statements in the future being unknowable? Oh, absolutely. This is why we would be much better off putting a substantial price on carbon and letting the market figure out uh, which projects have benefits that exceed the cost, even once you account for the climate damage they create. If you put a price on carbon, the operators in Canada would face extra costs. Consumers in the United States would face extra costs. Uh, they might all still decide that this was something worthwhile, even with those extra costs. But the market would do all this math for us instead of having to have you and me on the phone talking about what the answer is. Yeah, to me, the, you know, let me make a couple analogies. In terms of energy policy, which is unbelievably important, this pipeline is such a little speck. It's almost like looking at the Elian Gonzalez controversy and saying that that equals U.S.-Cuba relations. Yeah, it's a flashpoint. Yeah, it's symbolic. But it's like one kid or one pipeline in this whole mess of oil. And the other analogy I would make is it's like talking about a recycling policy when all we're debating is should we recycle tomato soup cans and only tomato soup cans. No matter what we decided, it doesn't have anything to do with the overall policy. Fair analogies? What do you think? My favorite analogy is the fairground game whack-a-mole. Yeah. If you have raging global oil demand and you try to knock out one production project at a time, you are playing whack-a-mole because as long as that demand is there, different sources of supply will pop up to meet it. The only way you stop these things from popping up is by pulling the plug on that game. And that in the energy world means cutting our demand for oil. And this one pipeline won't change the demand at all. Look, if the pipeline leads to less production, it pushes prices up a little and that has some impact on demand. But it is small. It is not something you're going to particularly notice. Uh, you are not going to go out and buy a Tesla because someone said that the Keystone XL pipeline has been denied. There are certainly people who are against it who have fine motivations, but do you think the motivations of some of the people against it are either ignorant or grandstanding? I think in any political debate on all sides of it, there are going to be some people who are grandstanding, some people don't know what they're doing, and some people who are very well-intentioned and very knowledgeable. Uh, often people who have diverging goals and diverging analyses of the situation. So I don't want to question the good faith of most of the people involved uh, in this debate, uh, but the reality is this debate has become a focus well out of proportion to its substance. All right. I seldom say this, but you've convinced me that this debate matters because it kind of really doesn't matter. <laughs> you know, it may not have a huge impact, but it's a teachable moment, you would hope. Good job, Michael Levy, senior fellow, studies environment and energy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. The new season of Friday Night Tykes begins on the Esquire Network on January 20th at 9 p.m. If you don't know or remember the show Friday Night Tykes, it's about 10-year-olds who play youth football and the often distorted view of sports that the adults in their lives have. It shines a light. It lifts up a rock. 
some of the stuff, at least some of the stuff I saw in season one, was pretty disturbing. But, you know, I didn't look away. I was always compelled. It's actually a well-done series from a documentary point of view. And even though a lot of people criticize the filmmaker's eye on my other podcast, Hang Up and Listen, was on record as saying, it's worth watching. It's worth considering the excesses of these adults when it comes to youth sports. So again, Friday Night Tykes is the show, and it is premiering January 20th at 9 on the Esquire Network. The Internet is Not the Answer is the new book by Andrew Keene. Andrew Keene is executive director of the Silicon Valley Salon Futurecast. And just to give you some idea of how futuristic Futurecast is, there is no space between future and cast. Hello, Andrew Keene. Hi, Mike. And there's a big C in the cast, right? Yeah. So if the Internet is not the answer, what's the question? I don't mean that to be flip, but it's not the answer to what? So the question is, what operating system should we use for our economic, social, and cultural life in the 21st century? Simple question, but perhaps the most important question facing all of us today. And at the moment, and I use that phrase very carefully, at the moment, the Internet is not the answer. Does it mean it never will be the answer? I hope it will one day be the answer, but at the moment, it isn't working. So tell me about your history, and then your pre- we'll get to your present, but your history with the Internet. You were something of a net entrepreneur. So, yeah, my background is as an Internet entrepreneur and uh, analyst right from the beginning, from the mid-90s. I was lucky enough to find myself unskilled and unemployed in San Francisco in 1995. And from then on, one way or the other, I've made my living through or on the Internet. But did the scales fall from your eyes at some point, or had you always suspected that this thing is being a bit overhyped? The epiphany happened uh, at one of Tim O'Reilly's Friends of O'Reilly camp when a group of very, very rich, privileged, white, young techno entrepreneurs were sitting around congratulating each other about how the Internet was democratizing the world, making it more egalitarian. And I began to realize, and it wasn't just then, but I began to realize that Silicon Valley was really... Uh, deeply hypocritical. And as it profited, and as it continues to profit, and I, wouldn't, I would acknowledge that I've profited myself from it all, uh, everybody else seems to be losing. So uh, the hypocrisy is not that Silicon Valley is doing well, not that they should make a profit. I'm in favor of the market. But they should do so in the language of universal benefits, which is the reverse of the truth. Yeah, and essentially they should, they should have some shame about them. And if your job is to create a little shame in them, then that's all for the good. I mean, just use the example of Mark Zuckerberg. Worth $30 billion, and he's probably worth it. One of the most brilliant young men of his generation, of any generation. But the way he talks about the Internet, about connecting up the world, about bettering the world, the reality is, is that he only wants to connect up the world, so everyone goes on Facebook. So why not say it? Why present his product as a sort of moral utility when it's simply a private business, no different from GE or GM or or Dow Chemical? Are Page and Brin, the founders of Google, with their famous don't be evil dictum, are they in the exact same category as Zuckerberg, as, you know, Jeff Bezos comes in for a lot of criticism here in the book? Are they, is don't be evil just a slogan for them? Absolutely. Uh, I have a great deal of respect, particularly for Bryn. I think Bryn is is, is morally driven, and I really commend him for his uh, willingness to take on Eric Schmidt over the the China issue. This was revealed in Stephen Levy's book. But Larry Page is an example, and, and, and I do talk a little bit about him in the book, about this 
belief that Google is always right, and whatever Google does is right. So the moral universe is very simple. And, 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 and I think with Larry Page, he's got this idea that Google is so right that whatever it does, even if it revolutionizes the world, even if it destroys and disrupts every business, that somehow is for the benefit of mankind because it's for the benefit of Google. And that isn't the case. What benefits Google doesn't benefit the rest of mankind. And Google, if anything, epitomizes its increasingly monopolistic uh, internet. And as Google sneezes, everybody else gets pneumonia, rather like the U.S. in some ways. Could the Arab Spring have happened without the Internet? The Arab Spring could probably not have happened without the Internet, but we know how the Arab Spring ended. Uh, We know the catastrophic uh, finale. It's still going on, the civil wars. And I think one of the promises of the Internet, that it enables democracy, is false. It enables revolt. It enables disruption. But out of that disruption, whether it's the Arab String or Occupy, we're not getting coherent, responsible, developed political organizations. But is that the fault of the Internet? I mean, this is almost like saying the printing press enables disruption or placards enable disruption in a really rudimentary way. If if we went to Tunisia, they would say, actually, that was quite helpful for our side. If we went to Egypt, they probably wouldn't. Mike, you use this phrase, the fault of the internet. The internet is a series of technological tubes and, 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 and programming language. I don't blame the internet. You know, the internet is not the answer, it's a right. catchy title. But I'm very careful in the book to tell the story of the internet from its earliest origins in the 60s through to the invention of the World Wide Web. And I present the Internet as ideology, as a series of businesses, as a series of people. So blaming the Internet, I think, is a trivialization, and I try to avoid that. Right, but I guess my my question was the ethos of the Internet. Uh, The ethos of the Internet is... A lot of things, and one is probably one of overpromising that will reform governments. Yeah, what if all it really does do is enable revolts? Well, but, but, that but, could but, be a good thing. But, but Mike, I, I think that's ahistorical. The idea that before the Internet there was no revolt is absurd. Think about the Polish revolt against the Soviets, the Solidarity Revolt. That was achieved through technology before the Internet. The French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution, the American Revolution, the British Revolution, all these revolutions existed before the Internet. And I think it's one of the deepest conceits of Silicon Valley that they have somehow invented the idea of revolt. And it reflects the ahistorical nature of much of Silicon Valley. In my book, I talk about this problem of the Internet not only destroying the past, but the future, and us living in the perpetual present and an inability to gain any kind of perspective. So as you acknowledge, The Internet is Not the Answer is a good title for the book. In fact, I would say without the title, I might not even be doing the interview, but it grabbed me. <laughs> and I, I made some... I started. What do you mean? I started riffing on it on Vine, which is uh, <laughs> enabled by the Internet. And then I actually cracked the book. I'm like, okay, there are actually good ideas here. But you were surprised? This, beneath this surprised? yellow highlighter. I was wondering what the question was, and now that you answered it. <laughs> but if you were to title the book in the most anodyne but accurate way, what would that be? Well, the original name of the title, and I don't know if I can say this on podcast. Please do. You can say uh, anything. The, the original title was Epic Fucking Fail. <laughs> of 
course, publishers weren't so keen on the F word, so yeah. it turned into epic fail. Yeah. And then my New York publisher said, that doesn't work because I don't really know what it refers to. And he was arguing with my agent on the phone. But of course, I, he's a book publisher well, if he doesn't but, know what know, epic uh, fail is. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So, <laughs> so at one point, he shouted at my agent, look, the internet's not the answer. And there was this silence. And then, oh, yeah, that's a good title. Yeah. But look, book titles, what's the title of your show? The Gist. Exactly. Is it always the gist? Is this a gist, Mike? This is this is a subject. Do you, do you have a, a, title, a better title for your for your show that would be less sexy? Yes, it's Mike Pesca's I mean, Cavalcade of Whimsy. But, and, yeah. and, 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 and I'm really clear on this. The business of creatives, whether it's you or me, is to sell stuff. And one of the problems of the Internet is it's undermined our economy. It's made it harder and harder for us to sell stuff and make a living. So I can give out the books for free, but actually selling stuff is more of a struggle. And that's one of the areas where the Internet has really disappointed. Do you think this is fundamental? This is baked into the, this system of, of tubes and wires? Or, or is it that the people who first started it, Al Gore, or as you point out, the uh, guy who ran the East German Stasi, the people that started it are to blame or the people who wrested control of this technological system are to blame? Let's use the example of the Industrial Revolution to respond to that. It's a great question. So if we'd have been around in 1811, uh, maybe we wouldn't have this sophisticated technology. And I was Lord Byron, I'd say, uh, who, who was a, a Luddite. Uh, well, Walter Isaacson writes about him brilliantly in his new book, The Innovators. Le Byron would say, oh, the factories, they're destroying jobs. They're polluting our cities. We have to smash them. So the Luddites were against industrialization by definition. But industrialization was reformed. Government got involved. There were regulations. Children weren't allowed to work in factories. Factory owners were forced to pay a minimum wage. Cities were protected from the environmental catastrophe of the first wave of industrialization. And I think we're living through a similar period. I don't think there's anything intrinsic about what you say, the tubes, the technology, to make this a bad thing. What I do think is dangerous is the libertarian ethic, the libertarian ideology driving Silicon Valley, the idea that government and regulation is always bad. It's summarized in companies like Uber, which seem to have gone to war collectively against all forms of government, all forms of regulation. So we need the grown-ups back in the process. And I think if they are, if it's properly regulated, and if we have a truly regulated market economy, then this can be a great success. A couple of plausible reforms you put forth. A couple of plausible reforms is we need uh, a, a legislative solution to the data problem. Uh, the Europeans are trying with the, the right to be forgotten legislation. I'm not sure that's practical. Uh, but but, but there's certainly a need for comprehensive legislation on data. There's a need for regulation on the sharing economy. Companies like Airbnb and Uber need to be held to the same standards as industrial hotel companies or cab companies. And thirdly, the antitrust issue is major. Companies like Amazon and Google, which are winner-take-all companies that have way more power than any of the monopolists of the 20th century. Google now is way more powerful than, Google, uh, than the Microsoft ever was. And of course, Google only exists because Microsoft was so so weakened by the antitrust investigation, there needs to be a serious attention to this whole issue of antitrust. Okay. Give me an anagram for either neither tent or teeth intern. <laughs> How could I do that? Well, in that case, the internet is the answer. But in your case, the internet is not the answer. So you tricked me, Mike. <laughs> you got me to acknowledge the internet is the answer. Well, 
I hope it will be the answer. At the moment, it isn't. Read my book, and I'll explain why. The Internet is Not the Answer by Andrew Keene. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now, the spiel. A world gone mad. I'm now going to quote a guy named Phil Messina. Here's what you need to know about Mr. Messina. He was a professional in his field, and now he gives private instruction in the same field. It's fill in the blank. You ready? For 20 years, they've been frowning upon blank, said Phil Messina. What they forget is that they have a hundred-year tradition of blank. Now, what's in the blank? What's this thing they've frowned on lately, but they have a hundred-year tradition of? Is it tattooing brides in the Balkans? Is it hypnotherapy? Is it geothermal energy? Or is it chokeholds? It's chokeholds. Police chokeholds. Phil Messina, in an article in the New York Times, talking about why the police like chokeholds, he says, well, there's a tradition of it. And the chokehold, it's of course bad, because it could choke the wind out of a man who needs to breathe. Well, not every man, not, for instance, a snowman. But there are still individuals who support choking off support for the snowman or their distaff equivalents, snow women or perhaps snow maidens. Yes, a prominent Saudi cleric. Actually, I cannot individually confirm this cleric's prominence. He might be known, but not well known. Anyway, this cleric advised his followers not to build a snowman, quote, even by way of play and fun, as that would violate Sharia law. Now, the realities of snowmen and Saudi Arabia, you would think, has an angels dancing on the head of a pin quality to it. You know, it seems kind of hypothetical. Except a few days ago, Saudi Arabia was hit with a dusting of snow. It's actually the third year in a row that the upper part of Saudi Arabia got some snow, which has not propelled their alpine team onto greatness, but has prompted Sheikh Mohammed Salah al-Munajid to make the pronouncement that the representation of a man, including a snowman, violated the Sunni kingdom's ban against figurative depictions of the human form. Quote, God has given people space to make whatever they want, which does not have a soul, including trees, ships, fruits, buildings, and so on. So there you go, kids, Saudi Arabian kids, make some snow fruit, make a snow ship. What little Saudi kid doesn't want to go out there and construct a snow clipper or a snow galleon? Well, in Saudi Arabia, they do respect the human form. That's why they've sentenced Rafe Badawi to 1,000 lashes for the crime of blogging. Blogging. And this isn't even the guy who invented the Rickroll. No, he's just a critic and a blogger and a journalist, and he got a thousand lashes. Okay, this is one very radical way of suppressing content about Lena Dunham, but I think it might be a mite severe. The Saudis loathe representations of the human form, but when confronted with an actual human, it's the uncaned part of the back that really screams out for correction. And yes, ISIS is beheading magicians, or at least one magician in Syria. And yes, There is no way you could pour milk into a paper cone like that without being in league with the devil. But ISIS, remember, is the U.S.'s enemy. We do not countenance such atrocities. Saudi Arabia, all they did was tear strips of flesh off the back of a blogger in 50 distinct strips over 20 different sessions. That's why Saudi Arabia is our friend. And maybe there is something to be said for stamping out magic. After all, the Daily Beast interviewed a man living in the Paris suburbs. The young man, who only gave his name as Mohammed, called the Paris terrorist attacks a conspiracy and launched into a lengthy explanation of the, quote, magical Jews behind it. 
They were no ordinary Jews, he said, but, quote, a hybrid race of shapeshifters who have extraordinary abilities. They know how to get in everywhere, he said. They are master manipulators. They're the ones responsible for LeBron James joining the Cavaliers, he added. No, no, he didn't. They're the ones who signed Woody Allen to an Amazon deal. No, again, too far. Those aren't the Jews you're looking for. It is the magical Jews, said the man, who can break into tiny little pieces and show up in Saudi Arabia as snow. They must not be allowed to be reconstituted back into actual men. Finally, some logic. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi produces the gist, but really, she's greatly helped by magical hybrid Belgians who can quickly take the form of residents of other Benelux countries. Just intern Claire Tennisgetter reminds us every day of the rich cultural resonance of the age-old tradition of punching a dude in the face. Joe Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcast, marks his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting magicians. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Weeps for Humanity, which several extremist clerics have considered a sign of weakness and ordered to be stopped. You can go to iTunes, subscribe to us. You can go to slate.com slash just email. You can go to Yo, sign up for Yo. That's an app. Sign up for podcast within the app. We'll tell you when the gist is up. We are on facebook.com slash slate gist. The gist reminding you, never flog a blogger. Thanks for listening. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we explain the momentous, monumental ascent of the Don Wall and El Capitan, explain why this is maybe the greatest feat in the history of rock climbing. You can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.